Thank you so much for listening to this pre-recorded episode of Pub Talk Live. To find out more about Pub Talk Live, including how you can watch live, go to pubtalk.live. Thank you so much to my Patreon podcast sponsors, Brenda Drake and The Shape of a Star podcast. Hello and welcome to the July 10th episode of Pub Talk Live, the live publishing talk show airing the second and fourth Saturday of every month at 9 p.m. Eastern. Author Journeys, which is what we're doing today, features an author talking about their experiences with publication. I am your host, Sarah Nicholas. I'm a young adult author, a board member, an agent liaison for Pitch Wars, and a library event planner. Uh, you can subscribe to Reminders via email by clicking on the link in the description down there so you don't miss another show. You can also follow the show on Twitter and Instagram at Pub Talk Live. And if you'd like to support the show, you can find a link to the Patreon near the end of the video description down below. And now I'm going to go ahead and bring on our guests today. Emily Collins' debut novel, The Memory Thief, was a New York Times bestseller and a Target Emerging Authors pick. Her young adult titles include the anthology Wicked South, Secrets and Lies in the Seven Sins series, as well as the anthology Unbound, Stories of Transformation, Love and Monsters. Sort of the Seven Sins, the first book in her Seven Sins series, was a Forward Indies Award finalist, number one Amazon bestseller, and was shortlisted for the 2021 Manly Wade Bowman Award for North Carolina Science Fiction Fantasy. Emily's diverse life experiences include organizing a Coney Island tattoo and piercing show, hauling fish at a dolphin research center, roaming New York City as an itinerant teen teenage violinist, helping launch two small publishing companies and working to facilitate community engagement in the arts. Currently, she, find, she finds joy in teaching classes for the Writers' Workshop at Authors Published and working as a freelance editor. So please welcome to the show, Emily. Hello. Hey, Sarah. Thanks so much for having me. Hi, thanks so much for coming on. So before we get started with news, I just wanted to remind y'all, if you haven't yet, to go vote in the viewer poll for today. And the question is, do you pre-order books? So we'll talk about that at the end of the show. All right. You ready to get started in the news? <laughs> I'm so ready. I was thinking there wasn't like a lot this week, but then uh, we started listing things out and there was a lot this week. <laughs> I know there's so much. There's always so much. All right. So Simon Schuster has announced a new imprint with the goal of, quote, publishing renowned, relevant Black voices in culture and politics. The new imprint will be called 13A, which, if you don't know, is a reference to the constitutional amendment that abolished slavery. The first few announced authors include Patti LaBelle, it's actually going to be a reprint of one of her cookbooks, ESPN commentator Stephen A. Smith, chef Aisha Cole, aka The Slutty Vegan, and the former NBA star Alan Iverson. This is a good time to mention all the news items that we talk about at the end of the show. They go into um, the description so you can read more about each of the individual um, news items if you would like. Um, so it's really hard to resist anything called the slutty vegan. I just have to say that makes me really happy. Um, OK, so um, next up. So. Um, a Hungarian book distributor was fined uh, for failing to clearly indicate that one of their books contained, quote, content which deviates from the norm. The content was the children's book Early One Morning, which depicts gay and lesbian parents. So um, if you delve a little bit deeper into this, this has actually become a pretty big 
uh, controversy um, with a lot of feedback from both sides. So disturbing, but hopefully will lead to some positive political action. Yeah, and Hungary has a lot of um, laws on the books and coming up, are there, they're not active yet, but they're about to be active, um, restricting all kinds of, of LGBT content. So, um, but it's weird because like the, the law that would have gone against this hasn't gone into play yet. And so they used kind of a different law <laughs> to yeah. enforce it. I don't know. Uh, yeah, so that's a mess. Pretty disturbing, yep. Yeah. Uh, speaking of messes, the book industry's supply chain is the most strained it has ever been, and the issues will continue until into 2022. Problems include port congestion, truck driver shortages, and rapidly rising container costs. Yeah, it is a mess. And for anyone who has tried to order from Ingram, um, which is a distributor directly, I see Sarah nodding. It's it's not been as streamlined as it would usually be. I personally have experienced this frustration, and I'm sure lots of other authors have too. So in the spirit of everything being a mess. Oh, I just um, want one thing. Oh, um, yeah. I did hear an interesting podcast uh, episode this week from Planet Money, which is NPR's economy podcast. Um, and they did a whole episode on the uh, specifically port congestion in the United States. That was really interesting. So if you want to know more about yeah. that, go check that out. And I will say, I live in a port city. Wilmington, where I live, is literally called the port city. That's its name. <laughs> and I know folks who worked out at the port, and it is absolutely true. Things are a bit of a mess right now. I think we tend to forget about the fact that so much comes to us through the port and by water. And I'm reminded of that every time I drive by the port, how crucial it is to us. So yeah, yeah thank your local longshoremen because and longshore women, because they do, they do an amazing job. Um, yeah, so again, in the spirit of things being a mess, hopefully we're gonna move out of the messiness of these things soon. Um, so Barnes and Noble's Union Square Twitter account posted a picture, you may have seen it, of um, Tiffany D. Jackson holding copies of her books with her name in them, but instead of thanking her, they thanked uh, the author, Danielle Clayton, for stopping by to sign books. So this is horrible enough, but then on top of everything else, um, just a couple days later, the indie bestseller list, um, which, is, which is put out by the um, ABA, the American Booksellers Association, they posted the cover for Candace Owens' Blackout instead of um, the YA anthology, which has the same title, which is written by Danielle Clayton and Tiffany Jackson, Nick Stone, um, Angie Thomas, Ashley Woodfolk, and um, Nicola Yoon, which is actually what hit the list. So these are two pretty um, horrible missteps in um, one week. And um, the ABA has since issued a formal apology and are, quote, um, working on procedures to ensure this won't happen again. Um, and if you follow the Twitter thread, there's a lot of feedback. Um, of course, some people are rightfully enraged. Other people are saying, I'm a member of the ABA. Please let me help you work on whatever these procedures are. Can you clarify what these procedures will be? Um, it's incredibly invalidating, I'm sure, for these authors to have this happen and incredibly frustrating. Um, and so I am really hoping that um, whatever procedures do get put in place involve the communities that have been disenfranchised by this and that uh, this does not happen again, because I can just only imagine how um, frustrating and upsetting that this must be. Yeah, I saw. I actually saw the tweet first. Someone had posted a screenshot of it in one of my group chats. And I was like, 
but she's holding books with her name on the cover. Like you can see her name in the yeah. photo. Yeah. Um, and then of course, Blackout. If you don't know who Candace Owens is, she's um, uh, kind of a, or a right wing pundit is the nice way of saying it. Mm -hmm. uh, so it's even more you know, kind of egregious because of the politics involved. Yeah, it, it's pretty terrible all the way around. And um, if this does lead to some really important systemic reform, then that'll be really great. I just hate that this is what had to happen for that to take place. Yeah. And it, so I don't know if anyone follows Tiffany, but she um, actually back in May had posted a tweet that was like, it had a picture of all of them. And it was like, learn our names. We're not the same writer. Um, if anyone messes up, I'm going to have to eat someone or something like that. It was like kind of jokey, you know? But it was like, she called this in May. Like she knew that this was gonna happen in May, um, which is wild. Speaking of, this goes right into that. Um, People of Color in Publishing and Latinx in Publishing released a detailed survey they conducted in 2018 that sought to gauge the extent of BIPOC book publishing employees experiencing racism in the workplace. The report includes actionable takeaways and resources for those seeking to dismantle racism in the publishing industry. So go give that a look later or sometime whenever you have the time. And uh, and because it's, it's quite in depth. They received about, they said 50,000 words of responses. Wow. Well, hopefully in the same spirit of becoming less of a mess again. Um, so I'm hoping that I'm pronouncing this right. Lyrasis, L-Y-R-A-S-I-S. -S. I'm hoping that's it. We're going to pretend that's it, right? Okay. Um, yeah, so Lyrasis. And the Digital Public Library of America um, have gotten a $5 million um, investment for the development of a project that they're calling the Palace Project. Um, and so it's a platform for electronic content for libraries. So. What this will do is allow libraries to distribute content from publishers and large content providers, as well as local authors and open sources. And um, I personally could not be a bigger fan of libraries. Um, with my indie books, um, my publisher and I distribute wide to make sure that we can use OverDrive and all of these things. And um, you know, there's a couple different ways that you can distribute through libraries, but I know that there's been some controversy about the larger publishers making their work available through libraries and through OverDrive, et cetera. And so um, in my opinion, anything that is going to put resources um, into something like this to make libraries um, empowered to be able to reach more readers is a really fantastic thing. So I was excited to see that. Yeah, I know several libraries, mine included, um, have created their own digital platforms specifically for kind of the local authors and the, um, the uh, what is it called? open source content or, you know, uh, royalty free content or whatever. Mm -hmm. um, and so, but obviously only the largest libraries have the resources to do that kind of thing. So, all right. Uh, Vox published an excellent article about the controversial I sexually identify as an attack helicopter by Isabel Fall and the reaction to it early last year. Um, just a heads up that the story is very sad and may be difficult, especially for trans readers. Um, but if you're not familiar with what happened last fall, um, Clark's World published this short story and uh, it was it was kind of a, um, 
a trans person trying to take back that meme, the sexually identifies a attack helicopter. And it went very badly and um, a lot happened. So definitely read because it has an interview with the author and uh, she hasn't given anybody else any interviews. So it's the only time we've really heard her side of that story. Yeah, I read a little bit of that article um, and I just, I had to stop. I was like, okay, I just need to wait till I'm in a different headspace. But yeah, thank you for sharing that. It's worth worth reading, but hard to read mm -hmm. for sure. Speaking of hard to read. <laughs> oh, oh my gosh. Yeah. Okay. So I don't know if anyone else has read this. It kind of made the rounds. Um, I saw it in many different places. Um, it's long, but I think completely worth the read in my personal opinion. Um, so Nicole Brinkley um, founded, uh, I think it's now defunct, I'm pretty sure, um, YA and Terabang existed for quite a while. And um, so when Nicole founded this, it, I think Nicole was a teen herself, and it was a website that really uh, provided a forum for YA content online. Um, and so Nicole published this piece, and it was an in-depth exploration of the impact on um, and the evolution of Twitter as a player in the YA publishing industry. And I can't possibly go into everything that it went into because it was quite lengthy. Um, but it talks about how in the beginning, um, YA publishers utilized Twitter differently than a lot of other publishers, publishers of different genres, different markets um, were using Twitter and that YA um, publishers were thinking that their audiences were directly on Twitter. And so we're bypassing the middleman, middlewoman, middle human um, as a means of reaching their readers. And over time, this became um, this message to authors that if you write YA, you better be on Twitter and you better be on there all the time and you better be accessible to your readers in a different sort of a way. Um, and now um, Brinkley argues that the audience members on Twitter for YA fiction aren't teens anymore, that they're predominantly adults or people in the industry and that What's happened is that there is this true demand for perfection from the authors who are on the site. Um, and that if you do anything that remotely steps out of what is seen as perfection, even as a marginalized or disenfranchised author, you are immediately called out for it. And that frequently these call outs are taken out of context so that people who are doing good work, doing good writing are being um, called out in such a way that is very hurtful and very damaging. And so um, I want to talk too much more about it. I could talk about it for a long time because I actually feel very passionately about it. But here's one of the quotes from the piece that I think really is true and disturbed me the most. I'll just read it. Quote, relying on Twitter to shape a culture like YA publishing inevitably leads to a moment where the most vulnerable participants in that industry will break. Either they become part of the rage machine or the rage machine turns on them. So as a YA author who, for this very reason, um, tends to be more in a playground on Instagram than on Twitter because of this very thing, this really resonated with me. And I think if you have any interest in this, um, take some time, grab a cup of coffee, um, take you a little while, but it's long. It is very long, but I think it's really worth it. Yeah, I thought it was a great article and she talks a lot. The, the thing that most bothers me, I think, about what she's talking about and I'm glad she she talked about it a little bit was the disproportionate reaction to like if someone is for example like accused by multiple people credibly of sexual harassment and then someone like says the wrong word on a live panel like the reaction is the same from the Twitter community and it just seems like there's 
those should be treated differently, you know, and they're not by by Twitter. I agree. And I think there's a, a very reactive um, approach to things in, because Twitter does have that kind of cocktail party vibe to it where you just put something out there and then there it is and you can't edit it and you can't take it back and there it is. And, and so I feel like it's very easy for things to get lost in threads. It's very easy for things to get taken out of context and it's very easy for people to respond to those who are responding to the original tweet without even knowing the context. And so yeah. I think that as important as it is for everybody to have a voice and everybody to be able to speak out and everybody's voices to be able to be heard. It's also really important to be able to take a step back and educate ourselves and consider the context to make sure that we understand what we're speaking out about and not hurting those people that we most want to help. So, Yeah. All right. So the news this week was a lot of messy stuff. So yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah, definitely. If you get a chance, I'll post the, I'll post the links after we end the broadcast, so you'll be able to read uh, more in depth if you would like. And now we're going to switch over to the interview portion. So on like a regular Pump Talk Live, we have a guest co-host and an interview guest. And on Pump Talk Live author journeys, those are the same person. <laughs> so now you're switching over to interview guests now. <laughs> it's different um, me. Here I am. Yeah. Yep. All right. So we're starting with a question from Patreon supporter Danny, uh, also known as Lodestar. He's said we can call him Danny now. <laughs> um, and so uh, Patreon supporters, $5 a month or more, can submit questions ahead of time for our guests. And so he asked, very important question, what mm -hmm. food do you miss from Brooklyn? Oh, Danny, I love you so much for asking this question. I miss so many foods for Brooklyn. Um, so, I mean, I could be cliched and say that I miss bagels and I do miss bagels. Um, I also could um, be a little bit cliched and say that um, as a Jewish human, I miss Chinese food on Christmas because I also miss that. Um, but I think what I might miss the most are sweet potato knishes. I really love sweet potato knishes and I love them not being something special or exotic or fancy or nouveau, but just being able to walk into a deli and find them, oh my gosh, they're so good and the outside is so crunchy and bad for you and the inside is so sweet potato-y and wonderful and I miss it. All right, good answer. All right, so now we're gonna talk about your author journey. Now we got the, the important question on the way. <laughs> that was, now, now I'm hungry, thanks Danny, thanks a lot. <laughs> I have pizza on the way here, so. Yum, <laughs> um, yum. Uh, when and why, let's kind of go back to the beginning. When and why did you decide that you wanted to be an author? Um, so I was really shy as a kid, just like so shy. People were just the scariest thing in the world. And um, I love to read. And I, I think I was really young when I learned to read, like three. And I think it was mainly because it was like so much safer to disappear into books than to interact with the terrifying world around me. And I think um, in a sort of like you are what you eat kind of a way, like all these words were like pouring in. And I think it just felt really natural to want to tell my own stories and 
create some of the same things that I had been able to absorb. And so my very first story that I wrote, like is kind of horrifying now. I think if I was my parents, I might've like sent me straight into therapy. I don't know. I still have it. It's in one of those like black and white marble notebooks. And it was called Bloody Monster because I couldn't spell bloody. <laughs> it's like two Ds, right? And, and so it had, I, I like this drawing. I was not a very good artist of bloody. And he was like all scribbled and like mad. And then he was all red crayoned in. And um, he was called Bloody Monster, the brave monster who killed the world, right? This is like terrifying. I don't know, I was six. I think something was wrong with me. But I did write lighter fare after Bloody. Mm -hmm. um, and um, I just was always writing and I was writing by hand and like the way that like some little girls I would imagine who are not me might have like makeup and like clothes strewn all over the floor. I had pages. I just had like pieces of paper, like they carpeted the floor. Um, I don't even know if there was a rug. I can't even remember because I just remember papers. Like I would walk on the papers and um, I just always wrote. I always wrote and um, I also played music. So I think those were like the two ways that people really thought of me growing up was like as a musician and as a writer. And I didn't even necessarily think of it as something independent for me or even I don't know that I even thought, well, I'll grow up to write novel. It was like such a natural part of what I did. And, and some of my um, stories were so bad. Like I distinctly remember one about this like little girl named Samantha whose eyes changed color when she got mad. Like, I don't know, it was bad, like it was that. bad. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it was really quality fair. Um, but yeah, it just, um, it was just something that really truly always was a part of me. Nice. I remember my grandma when I was a little girl, she would, when she would get mad, she would say, do you see the pepper in my eyes? I don't know what that means, but. Oh my God, it's terrifying. <laughs> what does that mean? I don't know. Well, no. okay, now I'm scared of my grandma too. I'm really terrified. That was a lot. I probably should have asked her. Maybe not, I would have run, just run. <laughs> All right. Um, yeah, so you started pretty early, but what was one of the first major hurdles that you hit along the way to becoming a published author? And right. how did you yeah. handle that? Mm. <laughs> this is like a terrible story, but like ends well. Um, so, you know, I told you, I, I wrote all the time and I got to college and I was like, well, I've just like spent so much time writing. I should major in something else. I should major in something that's not writing because like I just have, I don't know. Looking back, I don't know if this was wise, but like this is what I decided. So I went to do this. I majored in like psychology and then like media studies, right? Um, and I loved it. But um, my friend had taken a writing class and she was like, oh, you should take a writing seminar with this gentleman. You should take it. He's a good professor. And I'm like, oh, okay. And I should have known she had written a story about a light bulb, which is like not at all like this sort of thing I would write, like a personified light bulb. But I was like, that's weird. But okay, I'll do it. And um, so like I went to Duke and Duke was like, I guess I'd not thought about it this way, but you know, it just had, there was an attitude. There was like an attitude around the little seminars. And I had gone to a New York city public high school where we were taught good writing is good writing. It doesn't matter if it's a supermarket paperback. It doesn't matter if it's a fancy classic. It doesn't matter. Like good writing is good writing. Good story is I feel good like story. I can see where this is going. Yeah, it goes to a set. It goes to a dark, dark place. But it yeah. ends well. Okay, I just have to feel like I need to reassure people it ends well. So I got to this class, and I didn't even really know, like in the way that we hold our deepest assumptions about the things that matter most to us. Like I had just internalized this notion of good writing is good writing, and. Um, 
I was not really a writing snob other than knowing what I liked. I didn't care what form it appeared in. So we got to this class and um, I at that point was reading a lot of Anne Rice. I really loved Anne Rice. Um, and so we went around the room. It's a little seminar, right? And we're supposed to say like our favorite authors and mm. people said things. I no longer remember what they said because I'm so traumatized by what happened next. And they got to me and I said like two acceptable people that I can't remember who they were either. But then I said, Anne Rice. And this horrible, horrible, like deadly silence fell over the table and nobody would meet my eyes. People started like, if they could have slid under the table, they would have. And I was like, what? She's like really great. And she taught me all about Catholicism as a Jewish person. And she's seminal and revitalizing the vamp. And I'm like saying this and it's just, I'm digging my hole, but I didn't realize this. I was totally digging my own hole. And the professor just looked at me like maybe I was like an earth berm that had somehow like materialized in the body of a college student. I was sitting around this like, how did you get into this seminar? Because I, is it too late to kick you out? Because I really don't know. So this whole semester, anytime anybody wrote anything that was deemed remotely commercial, remotely genre oriented, remotely non-literary, he would turn, he'd go, what do you think? And Rice. And he would stare at me. And he just mocked me the whole semester. And like, it was totally demoralizing because I was like, oh, like, but I thought she was a great, right? I, but I, and so by the end of that semester, I was determined, like he wouldn't, I wouldn't quit because of this guy, I was determined. Yeah. Um, but I also became like more and more demoralized. And like, by the end of that class, I couldn't have told you anybody else who was around the table. And by the end of it, I was like, you know what? I'm clearly not meant to write books. Like something is wrong with me. I have no taste. Like I, maybe I could help other people get published. Like I, so that sort of led me into like starting to work for small publishers and working for magazines and writing nonfiction or writing journalistic articles. Um, and um, it took a long time for me to find my way back to writing. And in fact, what happened was I was working for a youth arts nonprofit and I was responsible for um, managing the teaching artist meetings. And I don't know if you've ever worked with teaching artists, but like getting them to like follow administrative rules is like hurting a bunch of kittens. Like it just doesn't happen. And one of them turned to me and they were like, oh, Emily, I'm so sorry, you know, as an arts administrator, like you must just find this so frustrating. And I had this moment of, I mean, wow, like you have no idea that I used to write creatively and you have no idea that I used to play music because you just know me as like the strategic planner and the grant writer and all of this. And I realized that was because that was all I had showed them. And I had allowed more than 10 years at this point to elapse about 10 years from the point that I took this class to now. So I made a decision. It was like a real watershed moment. I was like, okay, so I could either be like, okay, I'm passionate about the work that I do for this organization. I love it. I could keep doing it and I would never have any regrets. Or I could really like take the same risk that these teaching artists are taking and that the kids we work with every day where we ask them to be creative are taking and I could write. So I built up my freelance income. I stepped away and I thought I'll give myself a year. And if I can write a book, by the end of this year, great. And if I can't, then at least I'll know that I tried. So that's what I did. And that's the book that became The Memory Thief. Um, and the really funny part about this, like the really like icing on the cake of take that, Mr. Professor. Um, so several years later, I was uh, a writer in residence at a wonderful place called Wild Acres. And there was a fellow writer there. And we were sitting talking. I didn't think I knew her at all. 
Um, but we we're talking and I said, oh, have you always been a writer? No, she said, it took me about 10 years to get into writing after college. I became a lawyer. Blah, blah, blah. And I was like, oh, me too. And she, I said, well, why did that happen to you? She said, well, I had this college professor and he was so awful and he was so demoralizing. And I was like, me too. Where did you go to school? So we were like, oh, well, we went to Duke, both of us. What year did you graduate? Both of us. Well, it turned out that we had been in the same seminar at the same time. And neither one of us really remembered the other because we were so traumatized. And um, he had called her women's fiction and he called me Anne Rice. The entire, and so the best part of this whole story is that she went on to become a successful author and she went on to start her own small publishing company, um, which is Blue Crow, which publishes my YA series. Um, and the best part of this whole story that makes me the happiest every time I tell it is that having totally forgotten her, this lovely professor submitted um, a book to uh, Blue Crow for publication and she had the ultimate privilege of rejecting it. So um, when she called me to tell me that story, I laughed for a long, long time and I felt like, I, I felt, I felt like karma is real. So yes, that's, that's my, my bump in the publishing story. But I also, it's made me like whenever I teach just really determined to never do that to my students, just to treat all my students with respect, no matter whether they write what I want to read or where they are in their journey, because you just never know the impact that you can have on people, so. Yeah. All right. <laughs> Crazy, right? Yeah. Um, so I'm gonna skip ahead a little bit because you you went over some of it and I have a lot of, a lot more questions than I think we'll fit in time. <laughs> Yeah. Um, so your first novel, The Memory Thief, was a um, New York Times bestseller, Target Emerging Authors pick. And then um, your second, how was your experience with your second book different from your first? Yes, yeah, so it was weird. It was like a weird thing. You know, The Memory Thief did so well. And um, then um, the second book came out and did not do nearly as well. And I think that was really hard for me um, because at that point, like, you know, there is like this sophomore slump that people talk about with publishing. Um, but I think we don't talk about it enough. You know, I think that there is this idea that like, once you write a book and that book does really, really well, that you are then sort of set up, you know, for life and that's it. And um, in the traditional publishing industry, there is this concept that you're only as good as the sales of your last book. And whether or not a book does well, sometimes it's you, you know, but sometimes it's just the vagaries of the market. Sometimes it's how the publisher decides to pitch it and how many marketing dollars they put behind it. And so I think it can be a really demoralizing industry in that way. And particularly um, in traditional publishing for the big five where I was, which has so many gatekeepers. And so um, now I am querying a third um, adult women's fiction book and kind of feel like I'm starting over in that way, um, but also feel in a sense really empowered because I, I think I have a much better handle on the market but it really was a shock to the system and I, I think it was a little strange for me to come out straight out of the gate with the first book that I wrote doing so well without a long publishing journey etc cetera, etc cetera, and then really kind of have to reckon with this um, on the second book so it did teach me a lot and it was hard at first um, and um, I had to you have to go back as an author and really think like okay how much of this is on me in terms of not writing a book that resonated with the market and how much of it is just stuff that happens and not your fault and how can you apply that moving mm -hmm. forward so it can be a challenging industry in that way for sure yeah i can i can imagine like hitting your times with your first book and then you're like oh i'm i'm set i'm good and then <laughs> kind of have, have the brakes put on a little bit 
Yeah, um, it was weird. It was weird. Yeah. So you you've published with a big five house, and and you're with a small traditional publisher as well. Uh, how are those experiences both different and and similar? Um, so yeah. So you know, starting out with, I think there's a misconception that if you are published with a big five house, that they do everything for you. You know, that they do all the marketing, that they do everything. And certainly they do have incredible resources and they have incredible reach. And there are things that they can do that a small press just doesn't have the resources to do. Um, but I think I had the idea initially going in that, you know, I wouldn't have to invest in marketing dollars um, being with a big five house. And so I was quickly disabused of that notion. Um, and Penguin Random House did have a wonderful marketing team um, and a wonderful publicity team that I worked hand in hand with. But, you know, I definitely had to educate myself about the industry in that way. And then now um, being with Blue Crow for my YA series, um, they are a small press. And so it it's an opportunity for me to be really involved in that process with them. Um, they're able to pivot a lot more easily. So, you know, if something, I have a lot more access to my sales numbers, if something isn't working in terms of a marketing strategy or something like that, we can turn really easily. Um, it is, you know, it's not 5,000 departments where there's sales and marketing and public. And so it's, I think it's, it's, um, it's an interesting place to be in because there are definitive advantages to going with a large um, publisher, especially in terms of the reach and visibility and trade visibility that they can afford for you. Um, and then there are different kinds of advantages um, going with a small traditional or small independent press um, and, and different advantages still um, being um, an indie author. So um, my, um, my anthology that I was a part of I put out with a collected collection of um, five international authors. And that was just, we called ourselves Five Points Press because we're in five points of the globe. And that was my first experience doing something that was, you know, indie author in that way. And it gave us, again, so much flexibility, so much control. Um, and more and more, I think the notion of gatekeeping is really um, taking a hit. And traditional publishers are looking at what flexible indie authors and indie publishers are doing in order to co connect more directly with readers and be less unwieldy, I would say. Um, so I think this is a, a real pivot point for the industry. And I'm grateful for having both of these perspectives because it's really given me interesting insights into both sides of the fence. Yeah, nice. We were talking before we went live about pitch wars and writing community. Um, and you said that you found writing community really important to your journey. So do you want to talk a little bit about that and also about how you found your writing community? Yeah, absolutely. Um, so when I started out, like the Memory Thief came out in 2012. And, you know, um, there's a lot of people that I've talked to that I've met since then that said that they found their writing um, community on Twitter in 2012. I don't know why this didn't occur to me. Maybe I was under a rock, very possible. Um, but it didn't occur to me. And, you know, a, a lot of people, I think by the time that they become quote unquote successful, what does that even mean? Authors, um, you know, they have, maybe they've done an MFA program, which is certainly not necessary. Or maybe they've been a member of a lot of different critique groups, or maybe they've published lots of short fiction. In short, they have some kind of writing community. Well, I had zero kind of writing community, nothing. Because, you know, I had 
a connection to the writing community in North Carolina where I lived, but that was because I had worked on the publishing side of things for so long. I had worked for magazines. I had been an editor at a small press. I had interned at small publishing companies before then. So it wasn't that I didn't know people in the industry. I was very fortunate to know people in the industry, but it wasn't on the writer side of things. It was, and it wasn't gradual where it's like, okay, we're all kind of coming up through the ranks together and we're critiquing each other's work. It was, I was an editor and now I'm an author. And it sort of went from zero to 60, which was wonderful in a way, like career wise for the memory thief. It was certainly shocking. I was very surprised, um, but it was also kind of fish out of watery. Like there was no one to really connect with in that way because if I would go to a lot of the conferences, a lot of the authors that I would meet would be still on the road of trying to get published. And I'd be like, okay, well, I maybe it was a fluke, but I got published this first time. And I, so I really struggled with that. And it was really hard for me. And um, I really wanted a community very much so. Um, just, I think as writers, like we have sort of unique issues that we have to commiserate about, whether it's just not understanding why something won't sell or trying to figure out how to pitch something or just like, how can I write a sentence that's beautiful the one day and the next day I look at it and it's like absolute garbage. Like just, just, you know, like anything else you need people to commiserate with and writing is a less visible art as well. You know, musicians, they're all getting up and jamming together. Artists, what they paint is highly visible and you can share a studio space, but our stuff, like it just looks like we stare into space a lot and maybe stare at people by accident and then like poke away at a keyboard. It can be really isolating. So I really wanted a community. And when I somehow found Pitch Wars and I don't know, I can't remember how it is that I found Pitch Wars anymore, but I was like, oh, this seems so amazing because not only could I maybe mentor and give back, but it also seemed like a wonderful opportunity to maybe connect with other writers who had a similar mindset of wanting to give back. Um, which was important to me. And I thought, well, maybe I could connect with them too. It seems like maybe we have a similar ethos. And so I was so excited when I got chosen as a mentor. I loved my mentee who was amazing and since got a pub deal and she's fantastic. Um, and very, very randomly, and I didn't know this when I chose her, but her family's from um, the town in which I live and she had done her MFA here in this, I, I had no clue. So it was really meant to be, but um, ever since then, my writing community that I have, a lot of it has grown out of Pitch Wars, even though I was just a mentor that one year. Um, I'm a part of this wonderful critique group now, and the liaison from that, the connection, is someone that I met through Pitch Wars, um, people that I've like tuned into for publishing advice. Like, hey, what do you guys recommend about this, that, or the other? Um, you know, it's not even in the context of Pitch Wars, but it's, you know, that connection. When I went to Romance Writers of America for the first time in 2017, which is when I met you, Sarah, I was so overwhelmed because I didn't know anybody. And I was like, this is the most intimidating thing ever. And yet we had this little Pitch Wars. And I was like, I've never met these people in person, but here we are around the table and suddenly it wasn't so scary anymore. So I just think that for me anyway, having that community is so important. People who get you, people who hold you accountable, people who make you get your butt in the chair every morning and do writing sprints, um, people who will call you on your crud when you're like, I don't have time to write. That. You know, I just, um, people who will support you, people that you can read your stuff to and be like, this work, you know, um, and also, um, you know, my little critique group formed kind of as a pitch wars group for more experienced writers where we thought, what if we could do the same for each other as we're doing for emerging writers at pitch wars? What if we could extend that same mentoring to each other because we all have different strengths 
and that was the iteration of it. So yeah, I just, um, I'm super grateful to Pitch Wars for that. And I try to volunteer and help out whenever I can, because I, I really am so appreciative. But I do think having that community, for me anyway, has meant everything, even if it came along a little later in my writing career. And I think I, I take it less for granted and appreciate it even more because I didn't have it at first. Nice. Yeah, the um, at uh, uh, big conferences especially, you can always find a Pitch Wars person than sometimes by accident. So, <laughs> um, all right. We have another question from Patreon supporter Danny. Fun question. How do you set up all of the photos for your Instagram? They're so pretty. <laughs> oh, see, I love Danny. Danny's clearly the best. Um, I, so I should, I don't do this, but I should. I should really like set one day a week where I take like a week's worth of Instagram photos. That is always my intention and somehow it gets dashed as so many intentions do. But um, so when things are going well, that's what I do where I'll take like two hours on a weekend and I'll try to get someplace with really good light. Um, I do have a ring light, but I don't use it that much. I try to get natural light. Um, like my front porch is really good because it's covered. And so there's natural light streaming in everywhere, but there's not glare, which is really bad. Um, and I think it like makes life easier if you just switch out a couple things, a couple props um, in your Instagram photos um, instead of um, like changing everything up all the time. So when I first started taking pics of books, I was like, I have to take a completely different picture of books every, oh my gosh, it was so time consuming. And I mean, I do love finding things that kind of match up with the books. I try to like color coordinate a little bit. Um, and I'm not super great at having a theme the way that a lot of folks are. And I'm not super great about, like I will run my photos through Canva um, and I've got like, you know, a, um, like an overlay that I'll use for it. And I do try to use the same filter every time. And I try, I'm just shooting using my iPhone, but um, I shoot using the sometimes square um, mode, sometimes portrait, but portrait is not that great because then you have to trim it down to that 1080 by 1080. So um, if you shoot it in square originally, then you know exactly that what you're getting in the frame is what's gonna be there. And um, yeah, I just, I try to always include things that make me feel either cozy or happy or relaxed or, like I would want to read the book. And um, sometimes I'll do color themes where like all the books, you know, that I shoot um, will have the same color. Sometimes it's more about, you know, the season. So, you know, if it's spring, it might be lots of flowers. If it's fall, it might have little mini pumpkins. Um, but yeah, I just, um, I feel like so much about social media is like where you can be genuine and like where you don't feel like you're forcing anything. That's why sometimes Twitter feels unnatural to me because it's got that constant like cocktail party vibe and it stresses me out because I'm that shy little kid at heart still. But like Instagram for me, I love taking photos. I love looking at books. I love looking at other people's feeds. And um, so there's just something like meditative and joyful to me about celebrating other people's books in particular and taking like beautiful photos of them. And, and um, I just find it kind of meditative to just look back through and be like, oh, it's like a little visual journal of what I've been reading. So yeah. Cool. Thanks. All right. Um, and now is a good time to mention that Emily's Instagram along with all the other social media and website is listed in the description. So if you want to go check it out, you can click right there. Um, all right. So can you tell us more about your, your current series, the Seven Sins series? Yeah, actually, 
I, hold on, I'm gonna reach down and grab them so you can see. Um, yeah, so why am I so bad at centering things? There we go. Um, so yeah, that's sort of the seven sins and that's the first book in the series. And then um, that sort. And then here is Siege, which is book two, um, which comes out August 3rd. So um, the idea behind this series um, came in the run up to the 2016 election where I was getting really worried, uh, apparently rightfully so, about um, what was gonna happen. And I just really did believe that he who should not be named was gonna win. It just seemed like he was, and everyone kept saying that he wasn't, but I don't know. As a Jewish person living in America, I just don't have the same faith that everything is just gonna be okay, I guess, um, as some of my compatriots did. And they kept saying, well, it's just, just not possible. And I was like, oh, this is so possible. People don't like women to succeed. People, there's a lot of hatred. I live in the South, but I'm a Northerner and I'm a Jew. So I, there's just, there's hatred and I see it. And I was terrified um, that it was gonna come to pass. And so as I think we do as writers um, and as can be useful in sci-fi and fantasy, I tried to work that out through my writing. And so I kind of had these two ideas coming together. I had this idea of what would happen if people lived and died um, in a world where the seven deadly sins govern their every action, right? Like the sins, lust, pride, gluttony, like these are at the basis part of what drives us as humans, but they're essential human behavior. They're not essentially horrible, right? They're just part of the balance of what makes us who they are, who we are. But you know, they're also part of religion and religion is often used as a means of oppression and control. So I thought, all right, what if we were in a world where um, climate change was ramping up and someone was um, running for president and this person was not really themselves um, very powerful and knowledgeable, but was propped up by a white supremacist background. And what if this person won? This was before this person actually did win. So now I feel like maybe this is all my fault. This happened. I don't know. Um, and I was like, you know, what if they won? And what if they pulled out of all the climate change accords? And what if the climate change worsened? And what if, um, as a result, there was a complete revolution and that in the South in particular, there were these communities that formed that were very insular, that were white supremacist in nature, and people sought to control the individuals who lived within them by means of religion, um, by saying, okay, you live and die by the rules of the seven deadly sins. Um, and if you violate these, the punishments will be severe. So that was kind of the idea behind it. Um, but because I'm me and every book that I write apparently has to have snarky banter and kissing in it, even if it also has seven deadly sins in the apocalypse, I don't know. Um, so I, of course, wanted to have a couple at the center of it because that's just draws me to writing. And so um, I thought, all right, well, lust is forbidden in this world. It's punishable by death. So what happens if my two main characters are teenagers who fall in love? What do you do then? You know, if you've just been taught that love of all kinds is bad and that if you are found kissing, you know, you're going to be on your knees, like with your neck bare for the executioner's sword. What What is this about? And what happens when we realize that the thing that makes us the most free is also the thing that could kill us, right? So um, that is what this series really is all about. And it's also got a fantasy element in it that I was really excited to fold in um, that's kind of unexpected and twisty. 
Um, so it's got tons of like kind of enemies to lovers, forbidden love, deadly adventure. There's lots of sword fighting. Um, and um, there is also a pretty big transformation on the part of the main character. So I'm really excited about it. And the second one um, comes out August 3rd. And I'm actually doing this huge giveaway for it that I'm really excited about um, for pre-ordering, talking about pre-orders, like I know you were before. And my, my friend who's a metalsmith did this awesome um, poetry cuff for it and these really cool book earrings, which have little pages that really turn. So um, I love it. But yeah, so I, I'm, I'm so excited about this series. And um, there's a free prequel novella too, and a little short story collection that was so much fun to delve into. And uh, it's really different than what I've done before, but I've been having so much fun with it. Awesome. And the link for um, to order your books and also for the the uh, the free story are in the comments too in the description as well. Um, all Thank right, you. so your first two books were romantic women's fiction with um, some supernatural elements, right? Mm -hmm. And then the Seventh Sin series is a romantic dystopian. Um, what have been some of the challenges about writing for a completely different market? Well, you know, I feel like maybe I should have done a pen name for my YA. Um, I didn't. I don't know why I didn't. I really don't know why I didn't, um, but I didn't. Um, and so I think that that has been a little bit challenging in the sense that you know, people were expecting me to write a certain sort of a thing that would look like the memory thief or the dreamkeeper's daughter, which is that romantic women's fiction with that supernatural twisty stuff in it. And instead, I wrote this completely different thing. And of course, like, you know, if you read both, you know, um, sets of books, you can see I'm the same writer, my voice is similar, but I don't know that necessarily the same people who were drawn to one would be drawn to the other. Um, and I, I think part of the reason that I was drawn to do this was because I did struggle with that second book not doing as well as I wanted. And I kind of wanted to be like, well, so it's something fresh. Like, I just want to start all over. And I was reading so much YA and loving it so much. And the market was booming. And, and so I felt like, well, this is something I really want to try. Um, I think it... I mean, in a sense, it's also been good in that I was able to keep my same Facebook author page, my same Instagram, my same Twitter. Um, I was able to kind of carry over, you know, the New York Times bestseller, blah, 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 which I don't know that I could have carried over with a different name. Um, I didn't have to have two Amazon author central pages. Like once you have a pen name, it just everything becomes in a sense more complicated. But I mean, I felt like it was sort of on brand for me to make things more complicated than it needed to be um, in that I was now venturing into this entirely different realm. And things are done, even Instagram, like the Instagram for women's fiction and romance authors looks really different than the Instagram for YA authors, the expectation of what your photos look like. It's a completely different world and a completely different set of expectations. And I've been thinking about it, you know, now that I have this um, adult women's fiction um, book on sub, which is very similar to women's fiction um, or the, the titles that I wrote before. So I'm thinking, okay, well, if this does get picked up, how will I do both at once? Because really it's been more like, okay, I did one and I'm still that person who did that, but now I'm doing the other and I haven't had two books in these two different markets out simultaneously. And so I don't know what that's gonna look like for me. Um, and um, even in terms of the, the look of my website, you know, and all that stuff. So. Um, it definitely has been, 
it's been a little bit of a rebranding challenge and um, I think it'll become more of a rebranding challenge um, if and when um, this other book does get picked up. Right now I have a little bit of freedom because I've been focusing so much in the YA world. But yeah, I don't know why I did this to myself except for that it's really fun. And I feel like in the end, like it's about creativity and, and it is about art and, and pleasure and we can get so swept up in the marketing side of things that we forget this. Um, but you know, if we can't love what we do and we can't be passionate about it, then we need to be doing something else. So I just told myself that I would just run with it and that's what I've done. All right, cool. Um, whenever, uh, so of course I talk about branding a lot and, and that's one of the main reasons to use a pen name is branding. But then you look at someone like Sophie Jordan who successfully writes under one name in both historical romance and YA fantasy um and she seems to be doing fine so yeah. just a wee just a bit yeah i mean I think it's right. the same with like v.e schwab and, and victoria schwab you know but i mean it i it, i think you can do whatever you want to do you just can make your life like a little bit harder but if you're willing to know that and compensate for that then you know it'll be okay it'll be okay all right so last question um a question i ask every guest what is the most important book you've ever read and why with you defining important however you want? Um, so in the spirit of making everything too complicated, so I have two answers, but I told you this already. Um, so um, if it was like important in terms of my thinking, how I see the world, um, books that I think everybody should read, um, Isabel Wilkerson's cast, I think um, was really it was an important thing for me to read, not because necessarily the um, issues and points in it were brand new to me, although some of them certainly were, um, but just seeing everything in place in that way, um, in one place in that way, and the comparisons that she drew, um, it, you know, especially she's got a whole section where she really talks about how um, when the Third Reich in Germany was coming into place, that one template for that was looking at the history of slavery in um, the United States. And um, she draws very direct comparisons. And as a Jewish person, um, that was hard for me to read um, as, a, as, as a white person living in the United States and as a person of Eastern European Jewish descent, it was doubly hard in all kinds of ways. Um, and as a person who lives in the South, right? So, um, but I, I just, I do think that um, it was really important for me reading it to see all of that information in one place, not only in terms of her meticulous, impeccable research, um, but the way that she put all of these pieces together, which I think sometimes is what some of the best writers do, is pull all of these disparate things together and take bits of information that you might have seen before and make you look at them through a different lens. Um, and I just, I don't know, I kind of think everybody should read it. So um, that was a really seminal book. And then um, on a lighter note, um, Madeline Lingle's A Wrinkle in Time, which I read when I was like, I don't know, 12 years old. I remember being at the vet's office. My parakeet was sick, if you can believe this. And I remember sitting there with my little parakeet, its little parakeet cage, <laughs> thinking like, I, well, I hope the vet comes soon because like my parakeet, which was inexplicably named Pretty Please, really did not feel well. But also being like, I really want to keep reading. I want to know what happens next. And, and I think that was one of my introductions, one of my first introductions into the world of YA fantasy. And I still have that book, even though it's crumbling at the edges. So um, yeah, two of my most important books for completely different reasons. Thanks. Yeah. Um, Daniel Clayton was actually the first person to break the rules and do two books. So 
<laughs> oh, there you go. We talked about her today. I'm in good All company. Right. Yeah. All right. So now we're going to shift gears again, and we're going to talk about audiobook of the week. And both Emily and I actually have an audiobook. So I'm going to let Emily go first. Oh, okay. Okay. Um, oh, there it is. So Ashley Ford, Somebody's Daughter. So this is nonfiction, and um, I love audiobooks. I love Audible. Um, and so I just listened to it recently, and it's so powerful. It's an exploration of her childhood and her early adulthood, and it delves really deeply into issues um, around race and privilege and family and sexuality. And it's not an easy listen, um, but her voice is just so raw and skilled and beautiful. So yes, that um, that is one of my recent favorite picks. Nice. And she reads it herself? Um, I think it is her. Yeah, I think she reads it herself. All right. And mine is The Ones We're Meant to Find by Joan Hawk, narrated by one of my all-time favorite narrators, Nancy Wu. Um, it's a futuristic climate fiction book. Uh, it's young adult, centered around a complicated sister relationship. And it's hard to describe this book without giving some spoilers, <laughs> but um, it, I, it was really good. I really enjoyed it. Um, I've been really enjoying a lot of climate fiction lately, but it also makes me extremely anxious. Oh, mm -hmm. <laughs> understandable. Yeah, uh, but yeah, I really liked it. I thought it was really good. Um, it has some interesting kind of conversations in it. Uh, yeah, so cool. Well, I'm gonna have to check it out. All right, so now we're gonna talk about the viewer poll. Um, and the question was, do you pre-order books? And I have to remember what to click. There we go, so we can see it. Um, so let me take a look. I have to click over the other screen because it's so small on the screen. Um, yeah, so we had 104 people vote. 57% said occasionally. 24% um, though said often. 11% um, said maybe once, and 9% said never. This, of course, is not representative of the general population because it's skewed by the people who follow me, who are all writers and readers, usually. Um, but yeah, I thought this was interesting. I came up with this question because one of the, um, I, I write for Book Riot, one of the writers in the Book Riot Slack had said something about she had to check her list of books that she pre ordered. And I, I'm definitely in the like occasionally, maybe very occasionally category. And so I definitely don't have like a list of books that I've pre-ordered. <laughs> and so I was interested to see how other people were. How about you? Do you pre-order books? Um, I, so I pre-order books by either by my favorite authors where I just want to make sure that I can get those books when they come out. And especially because sometimes when you pre-order books like um, Maggie Stiefvater's new book, when I pre-ordered it um, from her indie books uh, store, she had done like a special book wrap for it. Mm -hmm. um, and it's so beautiful. Um, and so that was for me, I was like, okay, not only do I get to support her, but I get to get this book early and then I get to have the special book wrap and then she's gonna sign it. And so like for me, you kind of actually, well, no, of course I'm leaning the wrong way. Wait, 
Uh, you can't see it. All right. Well, I was trying to make you see it, but you can't. But it's actually right behind me. I put it up on the wall because it's so beautiful. Um, but yeah, so I pre-order books if it's that situation where uh, it, it's going to come with something really, really special and I get to support an indie bookseller because of it. Or I pre-order books if I'm like just so excited um, that I just want to make sure that I get the book on the day. Um, or I pre-order a book if it is by, you know, a friend of mine or an indie author where I know that those kinds of pre-orders are really incredibly helpful. And I think that's the really tricky thing about it is that, you know, pre-orders are so helpful to us as authors and they count towards, you know, first week sales and they count towards um, booksellers. So, but I also know that they're expensive, right? And so what I did for my giveaway campaign to try and make it like not so stressful is like, I count when people walk into their local library and they mm -hmm. say, hey, library, um, can you please order this book? And so that's something that I say on my site too, is like, I don't want anyone to feel like they can't be a part of this giveaway or they can't, you know, support authors just because, you know, they don't necessarily have the money to shell out because I never want that to be a barrier to my readers. So that's why I always try to say like, okay, you know, it, it works just as much for me if you're going to walk into your local library and say, hey, you know, this is an author that I love. Um, can you can you request this book so that I can get it get it when it comes in? So, yeah, um, I think it it's a mixed bag, and I, I think that um, it's the more we can explain, especially to folks who have the resources to do that, why it's so important for authors. I think the more eager they would be to support us. The publishing industry is like so confusing, and I think that things that we take for granted, like because we're immersed in it, it's just like you know other people don't necessarily realize. So. But yeah, you know, it's tough. Pre-orders are tough. Yeah. Um, yeah, I think, well, for me, part of it is I'm a minimalist. I, I don't own as many books as most writers do. <laughs> yeah. I do own more than the average person, but um, I pretty much only, I stop buying physical books unless I go to a signing. That's the only place that I buy physical books. But I do, I mean, my primary way of, of reading books is through audiobooks anyway. So um, sometimes, very occasionally, I will pre-order an audiobook, but um, usually I don't. So I don't. I don't know. I feel a little bad about it, but at the same time, like I don't usually buy print books except at signing. So <laughs> yeah, I, I'm. You know, I'm weird about the print book thing. Like I sometimes I'll collect books by authors that I really, really love. Like you know, Lee Bardugo. I have like a huge shelf of books, or whomever it is. I have like a huge shelf of books. Um, and I just love to look at them kind of as art objects. So they just make me happy. And like holding them in my hands makes me happy. But then like, I also like have a real weakness for contemporary romance. And those books to me, like they're, they're not gonna look gorgeous on the cover. You know, it's more about the characters and the consumption and like the escape during the pandemic where I just really read, wanted to read something light. Um, so, you know, I think for me, that's a piece of it too is like, during the pandemic, I did a lot more, um, since I wasn't going to the library, which I normally love to do, um, I did a lot more reading like on, on an e-reader. Um, so it really, yeah, for sure. Like if I go to signings, I'll buy a physical book. If it's an author that I really, really love, you know, where I know I'm going to reread because I'm a rereader, I'll buy the physical book. And then like sometimes if you do pre-order and you can get something special um, from the author, like sometimes I'll put like bonus epilogues in or, you know, a special cover or all of that. Um, and like I said, really to to support, you know, indie authors that I know that that really, really makes a difference for um, just because, you know, it, the more pre-orders that come in, 
the more the publisher is going to get behind the author and the more even Ingram, once they see that pre-orders are coming in, then their reps will go out and they'll put that in their forefront to talk to booksellers. And so, you know, it makes it makes such a difference. And so um, I'm not always great about it, but I try. I try hard. All right, Emily, thank you so much for joining me today. Um, it was great talking to you about your journey. I'm going to say goodbye to you and, and do a couple closing announcements. All right. That is. Well, thanks for having me. It was so much fun. All right. Thank you so much, everyone, for tuning in or watching the replay or listening um, on the podcast version, however you're listening. I appreciate you. If you enjoyed the show, don't forget to like and subscribe right there so you don't miss another episode. Um, tell your friends uh, or, you know, tweet about it or, or post on Facebook about it, whatever you do, whatever social media you do. You can also subscribe via email um, on the link in the description and the Patreon there is as well. And you're going to see the names of my Patreon supporters at the end of the show. And uh, also the website and social media and info about Emily's books, all of that is in the description right now as well. Upcoming, we have Wednesday write-ins every Wednesday. And then we also have, there is one agent chat live in, in July, but I forgot the date right now. So just, it's already scheduled. So you can go ahead and look at it on the channel. Uh, and then the, this is an important announcement. The um, Pub Talk Live for the, the second one in July is actually going to be on the fifth Saturday instead of the fourth, because I will be in the mountains and I have no idea if I will have internet. So um, yeah, so that's going to be on the fifth one, and it's going to be with Daniel Ford, who is the creator and host of the Writer's Bone podcast. So we're going to be talking a lot about authors and podcasting, and my co-host for that one is going to be Emily Thede, E.K. Thede, um, and so it's going to be a lot of fun. She also has a podcast, so it'll be like a whole podcasting extravaganza. All right, so that is everyone, everything. Everyone stay safe, um, wash your hands, wear a mask. And see you next time. Bye, y'all. If you're enjoying this show, please check out my other podcast, Queries, Qualms, and Quirks. Queries, Qualms, and Quirks asks published authors to share their successful query letter and discuss their journey from first spark to day of publication. I interview authors of all genres about how they got started writing, getting their book deal, and their experiences with publication. Search for it on your favorite podcast app.